You're listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of Mr. Spaceship by Philip K. Dick. Part one of three. Performed by Miranda Johnson and Ryan Johnson. If you enjoy this performance, please subscribe, leave a comment, or a review. Kramer leaned back. You can see the situation. How can we deal with a factor like this? The perfect variable. Perfect? Predictions should still be possible. A living thing still acts from necessity. The same as inanimate material. But the cause and effect chain is more subtle. There are more factors to be considered. The difference is quantitative, I think. The reaction of a living organism parallels natural causation, but with greater complexity. Gross and Kramer looked up at the board plates suspended on the wall, still dripping, the images hardening into place. Kramer traced a line with his pencil. See that? It's a pseudopodium. They're alive, and so far, a weapon we can't beat. No mechanical system can compete with that, simple or intricate. We'll have to scrap the Johnson control and find something else. Meanwhile, the war continues on as it is. Stalemate, checkmate. They can't get to us, and we can't get through their living minefield. Kramer nodded. It's a perfect defense for them. But there still might be one answer. What's that? Wait a minute. Kramer turned to his rocket expert, sitting with the charts and files. The heavy cruiser that returned this week, it didn't actually touch, did it? It came close, but there was no contact. Correct. The expert nodded. The mine was 20 miles off. The cruiser was in space drive, moving toward Proxima, lying straight, using the Johnson control, of course. It had deflected a quarter of an hour earlier for reasons unknown. Later, it resumed its course. That's when they got it. It shifted, Kramer said. But not enough. The mind was coming along after it, trailing it. It's the same old story, but I wonder about the contact. Here's our theory, the expert said. We keep looking for contact, a trigger in the pseudopodium but more likely we're witnessing a psychological phenomenon, a decision without any physical correlative. We're watching for something that just isn't there. The mind decides to blow up. It sees our ship, approaches, and then decides. Thanks. Kramer turned to Gross. Well, that confirms what I'm saying. How can a ship guided by automatic relays escape a mine that decides to explode? The whole theory of mind penetration is that you must avoid tripping the trigger. But here, the trigger is a state of mind, in a complicated, developed life form. And the belt is 50,000 miles deep, Gross added. Solves another problem for them. Repair and maintenance. The damn things reproduce. Fill up the spaces by spawning into them. I wonder what they feed on. Huh. Probably the remains of our first line. The big cruisers must be a delicacy. 
It's a game of wits between a living creature and a ship piloted by automatic relays. The ship always loses. Kramer opened a folder. I tell you what I suggest. Go on, Gross said. I've already heard ten solutions today. What's yours? Mine is very simple. These creatures are superior to any mechanical system, but only because they're alive. Most any other life form could compete with them, any higher life form. If the yucks can put out living minds to protect their planets, we ought to be able to harness some of our own life forms in a similar way. Let's make use of the same weapon ourselves. Which life form do you propose to use? I think the human brain is the most agile of known living forms. Do you know of any better? But no human being can withstand outspace travel. A human pilot would be dead of heart failure long before a ship got anywhere near Proxima. But we don't need the whole body, Kramer said. We need only the brain. What? The problem is to find a person of high intelligence who would contribute in the same way that eyes and arms are volunteered. But a brain? Technically, it could be done. Brains have been transferred several times when body destruction made it necessary. Of course, to a heavy outspace cruiser instead of an artificial body. That's new. The room was silent. That's quite an idea. Gross said, slowly. His heavy square face twisted. But, even supposing it might work, the big question is, whose brain? It was all very confusing. The reasons for the war. The nature of the enemy. The Yukone had been contacted on one of the outlying planets of Proxima Centauri. At the approach of the Terran ship, a host of dark, slim pencils had lifted abruptly and shot off into the distance. The first real encounter came between three of the Yuk pencils and a single exploration ship from Terra. No Terran survived. After that, it was all-out war. No holds barred. Both sides feverishly constructed defense rings around their systems. Of the two, the Yukone belt was the better. The ring around Proxima was a living ring, superior to anything Terra could throw against it. The standard equipment by which Terran ships were guided in outspace, the Johnson Control, was not adequate. Something more was needed. Automatic relays were not good enough. Not good at all, Kramer thought to himself, as he stood looking down the hillside at the work going on below him. A warm wind blew along the hill, rustling the weeds and grass. At the bottom, in the valley, the mechanics had almost finished. The last elements of the reflex system had been removed from the ship and crated up. All that was needed now was the new core, the new central key that would take the place of the mechanical system. A human brain. The brain of an intelligent, weary human being. But would the human being part with it? That was the problem. Kramer turned. 
Two people were approaching him along the road, a man and a woman. The man was gross, expressionless, heavy-set, walking with dignity. The woman was... He stared in surprise and growing annoyance. It was Dolores, his wife. Since they'd separated, he'd seen little of her. Kramer, Gross said. Look who I ran into. Come back down with us. We're going into town. Hello, Phil, Dolores said. Well, aren't you glad to see me? He nodded. How have you been? You're looking fine. She was still pretty and slender in her uniform. The blue-gray of internal security. Gross's organization. Thanks. She smiled. You seem to be doing all right, too. Commander Gross tells me that you're responsible for this project. Operation Head, as they call it. Whose head have you decided on? That's the problem. Kramer lit a cigarette. The ship is to be equipped with a human brain instead of the Johnson system. We've constructed special draining baths for the brain, electronic relays to catch the impulses and magnify them, a continually feeding duct that supplies the living cells with everything they need, but... But we still haven't got the brain itself, Gross finished. They began to walk back towards the car. If we can get that, we'll be ready for the tests. Will the brain remain alive? Dolores asked. Is it actually going to live as part of the ship? It will be alive, but not conscious. Very little life is actually conscious. Animals, trees, insects are quick in their responses, but they aren't conscious. In this process of ours, the individual personality, the ego, will cease. We only need the responsibility, nothing more. Dolores shuddered. How oh, terrible! In time of war, everything must be tried, Kramer said absently. If one life sacrificed will end the war, it's worth it. This ship might get through. A couple more like it, and there wouldn't be any more war. They got into the car. As they drove down the road, Gross said, Have you thought of anyone yet? Kramer shook his head. That's out of my line. What do you mean? I'm an engineer. It's not in my department. But this was all your idea. My work ends there. Gross was staring at him oddly. Kramer shifted uneasily. Then who's supposed to do it? Gross said. I can have my organization prepare examinations of various kinds to determine fitness. That kind of thing. Listen, Phil. Dolores said suddenly. What? She turned towards him. I have an idea. Do you remember that professor we had in college? Michael Thomas. Kramer nodded. I wonder if he's still alive. Dolores frowned. If he is, he must be awfully old. Why, Dolores? Gross asked. Perhaps an old person who doesn't have much time left 
but whose mind was still clear and sharp. Professor Thomas. Kramer rubbed his jaw. He certainly was a wise old duck. But could he still be alive? He must have been seventy then. We could find that out, Gross said. I could make a routine check. What do you think? Dolores said. If any human mind can outwit those creatures... I don't like the idea, Kramer said. In his mind, an image had appeared. The image of an old man sitting behind a desk. His bright, gentle eyes moving about the classroom. The old man leaning forward, a thin hand raised. Keep him out of this, Kramer said. What's wrong? Gross looked at him curiously. It was because I suggested it, Dolores said. No, Kramer shook his head. It's not that. I didn't expect anything like this. Somebody I knew, a man I studied under. I remember him very clearly. He was a very distinct personality. Good, Gross said. He sounds fine. We can't do it. We're asking his death. This is war, Gross said. And war doesn't wait on the needs of the individual. You said that yourself. Surely he'll volunteer. We can keep it on that basis. He may already be dead, Dolores murmured. We'll find that out, Gross said, speeding up the car. They drove the rest of the way in silence. For a long time, the two of them stood studying the small wood house, overgrown with ivy, set back on the lot behind an enormous oak. The little town was silent and sleepy. Once in a while, a car moved slowly along the distant highway, but that was all. This is the place, Gross said to Kramer. He folded his arms. Quite a quaint little house. Kramer said nothing. The two security agents behind them were expressionless. Gross started towards the gate. Let's go. According to the check, he's still alive, but very sick. His mind is agile, however. That seems to be certain. They said he doesn't leave the house. A woman takes care of his needs. He's very frail. They went down to the stone walk and on to the porch. Gross rang the bell. They waited. After a time, they heard slow footsteps. The door opened. An elderly woman in a shapeless wrapper studied them impassively. Security, Gross said, showing his card. We wish to see Professor Thomas. Why? Government business. He glanced at Kramer. Kramer stepped forward. I was a pupil of the professor's, he said. I'm sure he won't mind seeing us. The woman hesitated uncertainly. Gross stepped into the doorway. All right, mother. This is war time. We can't stand out here. The two security agents followed him, and Kramer came reluctantly behind, closing the door. 
Gross stalked down the hall until he came to an open door. He stopped, looking in. Kramer could see the white corner of a bed, a wooden post, and the edge of a dresser. He joined Gross. In the dark room, a withered old man lay propped up on endless pillows. At first, it seemed as if he were asleep. There was no motion or sign of life. But after a time, Kramer saw with a faint shock that the old man was watching them intently, his eyes fixed on them, unmoving, unwinking. Professor Thomas? Gross said. I'm Commander Gross of Security. This man with me is perhaps known to you. The faded eyes fixed on Kramer. I know him. Philip Kramer. You've gotten heavier, boy. The voice was feeble, the rustle of dry ashes. Is it true you're married now? Yes. I married Dolores French. You remember her? Kramer came towards the bed. But we're separated. It didn't work out very well. Our careers... What we came here about, Professor, Gross began, but Kramer cut him off with an impatient wave. Let me talk. Can't you and your men get out of here long enough to let me talk to him? Gross swallowed. All right, Kramer. He nodded to the two men. The three of them left the room, going out into the hall and closing the door after them. The old man in the bed watched Kramer silently. I don't think much of them, he said at last. I've seen his type before. What's he want? Nothing. He just came along. C can I sit down? Kramer found a stiff, upright chair beside the bed. If I'm bothering you... No. I'm glad to see you again, Philip. After so long. I'm sorry your marriage didn't work out. Well, how have you been? I've been very ill. I'm afraid that my moment on the world stage has almost ended. The ancient eyes studied the younger man reflectively. You look as if you've been doing well. Like everyone else, I thought highly of you. You've gone to the top in this society. Kramer smiled. Then he became serious. Professor, there's a project we're working on that I want to talk to you about. It's the first ray of hope we've had in this whole war. If it works, we may be able to crack the yuck defenses, get some ships into their system. If we can do that, the war might be brought to an end. Go on. Tell me about it, if you wish. It's a long shot, this project. It may not work at all, but we have to give it a try. It's obvious that you came here because of it, Professor Thomas murmured. I'm becoming curious. Go on. After Kramer finished, the old man lay back in the bed without speaking. At last, he sighed. I understand. A human mind taken out of a human body. He sat up a little, looking at Kramer. I suppose you're thinking of me. Kramer said nothing. 
Before I make my decision, I want to see the papers on this. The theory and outline of construction. I'm not sure I like it. For reasons of my own, I mean. But I want to look at the material. If you'll do that... Certainly. Kramer stood up and went to the door. Gross and the two security agents were standing outside, waiting tensely. Gross, come inside. They filed into the room. Give the professor the papers, Kramer said. He wants to study them before deciding. Gross brought the file out of his coat pocket, a manila envelope. He handed it to the old man on the bed. Here it is, Professor. You're welcome to examine it. Will you give us your answer as soon as possible? We're very anxious to begin, of course. I'll give you my answer when I've decided. He took the envelope with a thin, trembling hand. My decision depends on what I find out from these papers. If I don't like what I find, then I will not become involved with this work in any shape or form. He opened the envelope with shaking hands. I'm looking for one thing. What is it? Gross said. That's my affair. Leave me a number by which I can reach you when I've decided. Silently, Gross put his card down on the dresser. As they went out, Professor Thomas was already reading the first of the papers, the outline of the theory. Kramer sat across from Dale Winner, his second in line. What then? Winner said. He's going to contact us. Kramer scratched with a drawing pen on some paper. I don't know what to think. What do you mean? Winter's good-natured face was puzzled. Look. Kramer stood up, pacing back and forth, his hands in his uniform pockets. He was my teacher in college. I respected him as a man, as well as a teacher. He was more than a voice, a talking book. He was a person, a calm, kindly person I could look up to. I always wanted to be like him someday. Now look at me. So? Look at what I'm asking. I'm asking for his life. As if he were some kind of laboratory animal, kept around in a cage. Not a man, a teacher at all. Do you think he'll do it? I don't know. Kramer went to the window. He stood looking out. In a way, I hope not. But if he doesn't... Then we'll have to find somebody else. I know there would be somebody else. Why did Dolores have to... The vidphone rang. Kramer pressed the button. This is gross. The heavy features formed. The old man called me. Professor Thomas. What did he say? He knew. He could tell already by the sound of Gross's voice. He said he'd do it. I was a little surprised myself, but apparently he means to. We've already made his arrangements for his admission to the hospital. His lawyer's drawn up the statement of loyability. Kramer only half heard. He nodded wearily. All right. I'm glad. I suppose we can go ahead, then. 
You don't sound very glad. I wonder why he decided to go ahead with it. A was very certain about it. Gross sounded pleased. He called me quite early. I was still in bed, you know. This calls for a celebration. Sure, Kramer said. It sure does. Toward the middle of August, the project neared completion. They stood outside in the hot autumn heat, looking up at the sleek metal sides of the ship. Gross stumped the metal with his hand. Well, it won't be long now. We can begin the test any time. Tell us more about this. An officer in a gold braid said. It's such an unusual concept. Is there really a human brain inside the ship? A dignitary asked. A small man in a rumpled suit. And is the brain actually alive? This ship is guided by a living brain, instead of the usual Johnson relay system. But the brain is not conscious. It will function by reflex only. The practical difference between it and the Johnson system is this. A human brain is far more intricate than any man-made structure, and its ability to adapt itself to a situation, to respond to danger, is far beyond anything that could be artificially built. Gross paused, cocking his ear. The turbines of the ship were beginning to rumble, shaking the ground under them with a deep vibration. Kramer was standing a short distance away from the others, his arms folded, watching silently. At the sound of the turbines, he walked quickly around the ship to the other side. A few workmen were clearing away the last of the waste, the scraps of wiring and scaffolding. They glanced up at him and went on hurriedly with their work. Kramer mounted the ramp and entered the control cabin of the ship. Winter was sitting at the controls with a pilot from space transport. How's it look? Kramer asked. All right. Winter got up. He tells me it would be best to take off manually. The robot controls... Winter hesitated. I mean, the built-in controls can take over later on in space. That's right, the pilot said. It's customary with the Johnson system, and so in this case we should... Can you tell anything yet? Kramer asked. No, I don't think so. I've been going over everything. It seems to be in good order. There's only one thing I wanted to ask you about. He put his hand on the control board. There are some changes here I don't understand. Changes? Alterations from the original design. I wonder what the purpose is. Kramer took a set of the plans from his coat. Let me look. He turned the pages over. The pilot watched carefully over his shoulder. The changes aren't indicated on your copy, the pilot said. Commander Gross had entered the control cabin. Gross, who authorized these alterations? Kramer said. Some of the wiring has been changed. Why, your old friend. Gross signaled to the field tower through the window. My old friend? The professor. He took quite an active interest. 
Gross turned to the pilot. Let's get going. We have to take this out past gravity for the test, they tell me. Well, perhaps it's for the best. Are you ready? Sure. The pilot sat down and moved some of the controls around. Anytime. Go ahead, then, Gross said. The professor... Kramer began, but at that moment, there was a tremendous roar and the ship leaped under him. He grasped one of the wall holds and hung on as best he could. The cabin was filling with a steady throbbing, the raging of the jet turbines underneath him. The ship leaped. Kramer closed his eyes and held his breath. They were moving out into space, gaining speed with each moment. This concludes the Auditory Entertainment's production of Mr. Spaceship by Philip K. Dick. Part 1 of 3. If you have a suggested story in the public domain, or an original work you wish to hear performed, please leave a comment or contact us at auditoryentertainments at gmail.com. You can also visit us at auditoryentertainments.com. Thank you for listening.